Welcome to Wednesday night uh, Bible study, Epistle to the Romans, part 7. Let's just begin in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this time bringing us together, Lord. We understand, Lord God, that you are our teacher. You are the one who gave us the word. You're the one uh, who leads us into the truth. So, Lord, open our eyes to see, our ears to hear, and our heart to receive, Lord, that we desire, Lord, to grow closer to you to understand you at a greater level, Lord. So, Father, we just thank you for this time of study. We thank you for those that are here uh, in person or on their way or couldn't make it, Lord. Also, we thank you for those that are listening via podcast, Lord, that your Spirit is here to guide us whenever we go through this lesson, whenever we approach your Word. And so, again, we give you thanks, praise, glory, and honor. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we'll be in Chapter 9 tonight. Romans 9, verse 1. The Apostle Paul says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying, my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit guides our conscience. And just to to tack on what we were talking about last week, is that here, our mind and spirit are lined up, right? And so that's the way we're going to go. Because he says... I'm telling you the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. His conscience, in other words, his mind, is now affected by the Holy Spirit. Right? So, this is uh, the word conscience there, as it's broken down from Greek. It means the inner person or the moral conscience. So, in other words, it, it, it's... Uh, you know, it's it's not when you're born again. It's not a hunch anymore. It's not. It's not just. Well, I was thinking. I don't know where this thought came from. Now you have to begin to realize. Yeah. Well, you're. If you're following God, you're going to be influenced by the Spirit, right? And so, this is the gift of the Spirit at work within us. And I think sometimes we don't appreciate this enough. I think in Christianity, sometimes. The work of the Holy Spirit is looked at as it's outside of us. In other words, we'll say things like, uh, I'm going to direct the Holy Spirit, or the Holy Spirit will, uh, you know, we're inviting the Holy Spirit in, or this and that. And, you know, no, the Holy Spirit is indwelling. It's already in the inside of us. So what comes, it comes from within. It's not external, it's internal. And we have to, we have to remember that. So again, this is just a point of theology in work, that our mind and spirit working together, but it's not as if God is dealing with us. How I, as if we're here, and now God is... Sending something to us. No, God is now within, and now the the God is, is is directing us inside, spirit and mind. So, because the difference would be, this is the Old Testament, right? That God is, is is directing Moses for a period. He's directing David for a period, or Jeremiah for a period, or Nehemiah for a period. With the New Testament, all of that is gone, and now God directs us. Within, and this is the gift and the work of the Holy Spirit. So, uh, part of this gets explained here in Romans because we have to have a good understanding. How does God speak to us today? He speaks to us through His Word, and He also speaks to us internally. So, therefore, out what sometimes again theology outside revelation or new revelation or uh, non canonical revelation is not biblical something outside of scripture uh, or you know God told me to tell you mm. no God tells us here and then his spirit bears witness on the inside of us and now our mind is in agreement with that and so this is how the, that works it's just like when you're reading, I don't know if this happens to you, but sometimes you'll be reading a passage of scripture and you're seeing something and it, you know, you keep reading or you're just really interested in it or whatever and then all of a sudden you start thinking 
about something else or something is referenced in the Old Testament and now you're over there and the next thing you know you're in Jeremiah or you're someplace else. It's just God just directing you through the Holy Spirit through his word. I used to wonder about that sometimes because I'd be reading something and all of a sudden, you know, I'd be all over the place and it was just God directing me and showing me uh, a lot of things that I ordinarily would not have seen without God's help. Because we just read, you know, what does the author say? Yada, yada. But think about it in this in this way. What if you were reading a novel and you sometimes, you know, you read a novel or you read even a historical book and you sometimes you think, okay, what was the author's motivation? Why did he write this particular passage or she write it? Well, why is it there? That's a gift of the Holy Spirit. God reveals to you, you know, and he shows us why he did that. And, and that, that's why... Bible studies, I think, are so important because it breaks these things down and it shows us motivation, it shows us direction, it shows us uh, action, it shows us uh, where God is pointing, the direction that God is going. And so, any thoughts on that? Questions? Verses 2 to 5. It says, That I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenant, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ, according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever and ever. Uh, Amen. You know, why is Paul grieving? For his Jewish brethren, who had the word first, and, you know, like like in his, his own story, you know, he was a scholar, he had all this, but he missed Christ. And so in his conversion process, we had to realize, you know, if I missed it, you know, then there's others that have missed it. And they shouldn't miss it. So he's grieving for that. He's grieving for the fact that they have missed that. And so, you know, we should have the same grief for the unsaved, right? There's a, there's a sorrow there. Why? Because they're going to miss miss Christ. Um, I don't want your battery to go down, but the light's on. Oh, and, uh, uh, Not that I need a spotlight or anything. <laughs> I don't want your battery to go down. Uh so anyway, so we should feel the same thing, uh, uh, you know, that, that our, 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 our fellow human beings are not saved. And this is basically what he's saying. He says, my people whom I knew and, and all of this. You know, someone once said, you know, when we come into the church, we call ourselves brother and sister, but we forget about the people that we used to be brother and sister with in the world. We left them. We need to go back to them because those were our brothers and sisters before, you know. So uh, we need to remember that. That's what makes uh, uh, grief for the unsaved. That is a motivating factor, I think, in evangelism when we really understand the loss that they would suffer. Uh, then it becomes a grief issue. Pastor um, Steve. Yes. So I... When you're saying, uh, I have um, a young lady that used to be my student that I've known for maybe 15, 20 years, Mm -hmm. uh, to whom I have witnessed. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, the family came about a year and a half ago. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're Indian and they're studying their religion. And Mm -hmm. I feel that sorrow. And my question is, how long... I mean, do we Christians feel that sorrow? And um, when we have talked to them and prayed for them, and we continue to pray, and that sorrow is still there, it's like she's almost like my daughter, and I feel that. And you keep praying until you have that release, or till they come to the Lord, or whatever it might be. Thinking in terms of God. God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, and now all of humanity that has not received him. Mm-hmm. There's, there's that sorrow over that. So we should relate the same way. 
that's that's a normal that's a normal response from a born again believer who understands the depth of uh, salvation and what what it really means. And so, yeah, we you know until they come to Christ, um, we should feel that way, you know, and. The hard part is sometimes people move away or they do things and then we don't know. Mm-hmm. Or it's like the people that maybe prayed for us, whoever. We, we might not ever meet them, but it's they, they were praying for our salvation. Mm-hmm. You know? I remember when somebody told me one time, oh, I've been praying for your salvation. I got mad. Mm-hmm. You know, this is before I had really done that. I'm like, you know, well, I know God. I'm really praying for my salvation for him. And it was like, Arr. but now I understand what he was talking about. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, she would truly repent that you would truly uh, surrender to God you know as opposed to just knowing about God big difference so yeah it's a grief issue you know so yeah uh, it says something here that uh, struck me let's see first uh, four who are Israelites okay my question to you is what's the difference between a Hebrew and an Israelite and Jew Israelites lived in Israel. Very good. Jews were just of the Jewish faith. Followers of Judaism. Okay, and Hebrews were... The language? Yeah, I was going to say. The the language? The language. They spoke the language? Hebrew means aliens or foreigners. So when they were in bondage... Or, when, or before, they don't become Israelites until Joshua's time. Because that's when they possess the land. That's when Israel becomes Israel, when they possess the land. Before that, they're Hebrews. They're wanderers, sojourners in a, in a land that is not their, theirs. So uh, that's the difference. And so uh, when you say Jew, now you're referring to... Today, sometimes people will say, well, I'm Jewish as in a nationality, Biblically, Jew means they are followers of Judaism. So when you see Jewish or, 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 or Jews in the Bible, they're talking about those that were going to temple, that were going to synagogue, that were that way. So that's three different things. So sometimes people wonder, okay, why is it Hebrews, Israelites, and Jews? What's, what's the difference? Yeah. Technically, they can be all the same, but yet they can also be completely different in the way they approach it. So that's the thing. There. Okay, verse 6 to 9. But it is not enough, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. In other words, he's talking about that they had, haven't had received, because he's grieving for them, right? And so, like, to your point, um, Juicy, you know, how long do I, you know, and, and what's the consequence here? Why, why aren't they receiving the word? Well, he says here, but it's not as though the word of God has failed. So in other words, the word that was preached to them, the word that you gave them has not failed. Right? Okay. For they are not for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel, neither are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, is it not the children of the flesh who are children of God? But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is a word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. Point here is that by faith we become children of God. It is by faith. It is by believing. It is uh, uh, we are adopted in. And this is a theme, you know, when you get to Galatians, that's part of the theme there. It's in it's in uh, Philippians, it's in uh, Ephesians, Galatians, um, it's also in, in, in Hebrews, you know, that we are adopted by faith, but more importantly, we are children of promise. And that promise goes back to Genesis 12, verse 1 to 2. I will make you a great nation. I will bless those that bless you. I will curse those that curse you, you know, and so forth and so on. And the blessings there uh, that, that come out of the law, that we are children of that promise. And so the promise is given by, is, 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 is given, but we receive that promise by faith. 
That's why when Luther said, you know, I'm saved by faith alone. Believing God, believing God's promise. He says that I will be raised again because Christ is in me and I am in Christ. So therefore I believe based upon what God has said, I extend faith, right? And I found this out by scripture alone, right? Scripture revealed this alone. And then it is Christ alone who has saved me on the cross. And glory glory and honor to God alone who uh, projected the whole, the whole thing. So we're children uh, of promise. And uh, by the way, Israel, you know where the name Israel comes from? Why it's Israel? Struggled with God. Huh? Uh, Jacob struggled with God. Yeah. Israel Israel basically means wrestles with God. Mm -hmm. It contends with God. And so this is what's interesting is that uh, they are known by the name Israel contending with God. (laughs) I mean, think about it. And then when you read the story... Yeah, and then when you look at people that we're trying to preach the gospel to, what are they doing? They're contending with God, right? It's a, it's a battle, it's a struggle. So you know, that's a very prophetic and profound name for the beginning of God's story and God's people, because we are all what we are all now God's people. We're all now, and it's going to say that a little bit more here. You know, as, as we go on, we are all now part of that. So at some point, we've all been Israel, right? We've all been Israel. Um, yeah, wrestles with God. So, But it is by faith that, you know, the promise. See, all the promises of God are in the Old Testament. People sometimes don't realize that when they say, well, it's just the New Testament. I'm just going to follow the New Testament. Well, all the promises are in the Old Testament. The New Testament is just fulfillment of those promises or showing how it's been fulfilled through the cross. Again, Old Testament comes through the cross into the New Testament, which is application for the church. So now he's going to take it one step farther. Because remember, he's talking to Gentiles. He's talking to people that have not, that do not have a history of the Old Testament. So he's kind of laying it out for them. Okay. And he's given it to them sort of in, in bullet points here. So in verse 10, he says, Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, who was Abraham's son. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose according to his choice might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls. In other words, God calls us. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Hmm. And these are the twins that were inside. And basically what he was saying is, they're inside the mother They've yet to be born, so there isn't anything inside them that that decides who they're going to be other than what God is doing, you know, uh, as they are born. And it says, Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. And the story is, as as you go back and and you read it, is that Jacob wanted the birthright. He wanted the blessing from the father. And in those days, it was very important, and the blessing flowed in the family from the father to the son to the, you know, all the, all the way down. And, you know, they would lay hands on and they would pass the blessing. And he wanted that birthright. But Esau, it says, God hated. And it's because all he wanted was food. Because remember, he gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. But what do we have now? Now we have mind and body in action. He lost his birthright because his mind and body were... Because again, any two of these, that's the way you're going to go. So Esau is more on this side and his mother Rebecca is on this side because, you know, in the story, she's told by God that 
you know, that, that, that uh, it's going to be Jacob that, that the lion is going to go through, so that when she uh, tells her son that uh, uh, Isaac is getting ready to pass the birthright onto Esau, you know, she she has him go to Jacob uh, in the sense like he's, uh, uh, um, uh, I mean, go to Isaac like he's, he's, he's Esau. You know, he puts animal fur on him and makes him smell like he's been out hunting and, you know, this other kind of stuff. And you think, okay, wait a minute. Why would she do that? This is deception, right? She's deceiving. But no, if you know the story and you go back, she's doing theology. She's following what God said. And so that's why he goes in there. And that's why it says, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. But again, here's the classic thing. Mind and body, it takes you away from God. Because there is no, there is no spirit. Sometimes what happens is, the mind will try and tell the body that whatever it is is spiritual. But it's not because the spirit's not evolved. I mean, at some point, if, if, we, if, if we have, you know, mind, body, and spirit all together, but you basically have to have mind and spirit together, the body comes along for the ride. You know, uh, the body's just flesh. just wants pleasure. So, again, it's a classic example of that little thing there. Thoughts, questions on that? So it's it's uh, um, kind of cut and dry there, but again, you know, he's he's giving them the Romans glimpses of the promise. He's giving them glimpses of how all these things fit together, and so that's why, you know, when we just study the New Testament, which is good to do. But if we just study the New Testament, we don't really under fully understand where it all came from. We don't understand the purpose. We don't understand what we're doing is instead of um, there's a tree here and there's roots that go down in the ground that are being nourished by what's in here, right? That are causing this, but we're just looking at the at this. We're just dealing with that one little fruit over here, or a little fruit over here. But there's so much more to the story, you know, with the leaves and the branches and the and the trunk and the, and the root system and all this other. But if we're just doing the New Testament, this is all we're dealing with. But the Old Testament now takes us here. That's why it says we're grafted in. To the vine, right? And you know, by nature, you can do this. You can you can graft things on. I think I, t- I told you the weirdest thing I ever saw. I was in uh, well, not the weirdest thing I ever saw, but one of the strangest things I saw one time was in. Uh, um, I was in we called it junior high school then, middle school now. That uh, had a gardening class, and they had a tree there. That on it, the tree grew. Oranges, limes, lemons, and grapefruit all in the same tree. Because the guy had grafted those things on there. And it was just the strangest looking deal, but it can be done. And so this is what he's talking about. And later on he's going to be talking about that. that How are we grafted in here? Because God can do it. So we're grafted into this. We become part of this. And that's how we become part of the fruit of the vine. Because we're brought into it and we're grafted on and later on, you know, he talks about, you know, the, the Jews, that they were broken off. Mark, may it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. A couple things there. God is merciful. He's compassionate. And he's just. Justice. You know, um, 
when people sometimes look at, okay, why would God condemn someone or why is there hell? You have to understand it in terms of justice. You have to understand it in terms of law. You have to understand it in terms of this is what God has decreed. This is what God's law is. This is what God's standard is. If we don't measure up, the result is we are guilty. But God so loved us, Jesus paid the price that we're supposed to pay for being guilty. If we believe that, confess, repent, the result is salvation. That's, that's God's being merciful and compassionate, but it doesn't change God's justice. Because if God was a bad judge, he would say, ah, just forget about the law, it's okay. No, we're still guilty. And again, sometimes that doesn't get preached. Sometimes it says, oh, he wipes your sins away and it gives an, an, an unmature believer the idea of, well, I don't have any sin anymore. Oh, yeah, you do. You can, you can, you can sin at any moment. You know, it's, it, the sin nature is not taken away. That's why discipleship is so important, because it establishes who God is and why we need to uh, resist uh, God. The other thing that's there is that God is not controlled by humanity. In other words, you know, when he says there, look at verse 14. Uh, let's see. What shall we say then? Is there no justice? Is there no injustice with, with God? Is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. In other words, God says, I am the one who declares mercy. I am the one who extends mercy. No one else. It doesn't come because, hey, please, God, please. Will you please? Come on, God, please, please, please. No. It wasn't our idea. It was God's idea. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, in other words, when God says, I so love the world, his compassion was because and driven by, as, as Diego was, has been teaching in the, in the men's ministry, is by the action of God's love, right? God's love goes forth, therefore compassion and mercy are in there, but it's because God so loved. God directs the action, it's not because of anything that we have done. So, it's, it's again, it... He totally does away with this idea that I can work my way to God or there's steps to God or there's a hierarchy here. Again, it's we are justified by faith and what God has said. Uh, verse 16, he says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. He makes it real clear there. Because God controls the action. That's why... Alpha and Omega is so profound. Definite beginning, definite end. God's already established it. He's already put it together. It's not going to change. So therefore, humanity has to what? Conform to Alpha and Omega. And that's this. He says, I've already established the vine. I've already, I've already put the roots in. I've already here. But I want and desire to graft you into this so that you would bear fruit in my kingdom, for the kingdom, but it's up to us to believe that that can happen. And then once it happens, then that's the conversion, that's the baptism, that's the change, and now we conform, we renew our mind to these things. And that's what he's saying here, that you have to renew your mind to the Old Testament as it's brought through the cross, and now you live it out as the New Testament church, right? Uh, so God is not controlled by humanity. Thoughts, questions, or because again, I think sometimes in this really started with scholasticism, which started in the nine hundreds and really I think took root in about the eleven hundreds with universities and study, and then the Age of Enlightenment, the fourteen hundreds and the fifteen hundreds, and the sciences and all this stuff. Now all of a sudden. It was like, okay, humanity now starts thinking, okay, we can figure this out. And now it's like humanity is now saying we can now, we can now direct our course. Right? Because what are we trying to do now? Whether you believe in global warming or not, what humanity is saying is we can now control creation. 
do this or don't do that because we have to control creation. But when God put it together in the beginning, Alpha and Omega, he already had all this planned out. It's already there. And so we have to understand it from, see, that's why our, our view as a Christian is Alpha and Omega. God established it. God proved it. Definite beginning, definite end. God is in control as opposed to at some point humanity comes in and says, okay, wait a minute, I got this. Well, humanity doesn't have a heaven to take anyone to. Big problem. So, uh, um, what was I going to tell you? The Norton Simon Museum. That's when you, if you watch, well, they didn't have it this year, but if you watch the Rose Parade uh, and you watch it on Channel 5, they do it right in front of the Norton Simon Museum. But if you go into the Norton Simon Museum, I saw something very interesting because I, 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 the seminary I went to was in, was in Pasadena. And one of the things that we had to do, I forget the class, it was on culture and stuff. We, we took a tour of the Norton Simon Museum. And what I was really struck by was that over the years, when you when you look at some of the earliest paintings that they have, uh, the earliest paintings were all biblical themed. They were all themed around God. I mean, every single one of them had to do with God, God's God's uh, power, God's control, God's design, uh, celebrating who God is, and then. When you get to, uh, and that that stood firm for about a thousand years, maybe twelve hundred years. Then when you start getting into the age of enlightenment, now all of a sudden the pictures change to pictures of individuals. Blue boy, you know, in those pictures of uh, you know the guy with the helmet. What's that famous? You know, who was it? Rembrandt does that picture of the guy with with the helmet. And now now what's happening? Our individuals are being celebrated. And it's not biblical themed anymore. And now individuals are being celebrated. But what really struck me is that when you get to modernism, which starts in the 1800s and 1900s, now all the scenes are humanity. They're, they're, they're street scenes. They're people in cafes. They're, 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 they're cities. They're stuff like that. So we went from solid thought and worship interpretation See, art interpretates what's going on in the minds of people. So in the minds of people in the beginning was God and who was God and whatever, but over the years it changed towards individual to now humanity as, as a whole. So when you have these things of, of, of humanity now trying to direct the action, you got to wait a minute, because, you know, there's, there's a kingdom of God here. There's, there's, this is why Christian thought is so important. And when you lose it, then you lose that element of God in control. You know, and he's going to get into it a little bit more here. I think in the next verse. So any thoughts or questions on that? Okay, verse 18. It says, So then he has mercy on whom he desires, and he hardens whom he desires. Now, you know, when it says about Pharaoh, because he brought up Pharaoh earlier, and it says that, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And you think about that, at first, it's a wait a minute. God hardened Pharaoh's heart. That's kind of messed up because Pharaoh doesn't have a chance. No, what it means is that Pharaoh's heart was hardened because God revealed Himself to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh looked at himself as God. That's why the story is not Moses and Pharaoh. The story is really Pharaoh and God, because Moses is just a messenger. And he's saying, this is what God is saying. So the battle is between Pharaoh and God. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened because he cannot overcome God. And he's been told since he was a child, he was a God. And he will live. And that's what you, when you see the tombs, they're afterlife. And they're going to rule and reign in the afterlife. They're, they're gods. That's part of their deity. Roman culture has, has sort of the same thing during the time of Christ. Because I, I tell you, the... One of the names of Caesar is Son of God. So when the centurion sees Jesus on the cross, and he says, truly, this is the Son of God, not Caesar. Caesar hasn't done anything. Um, 
Verse 18 again. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? So in other words, he's basically saying that which has been created does not tell the creator or should not tell the creator why did you do this or change it or make it some other way? But yet humanity at some point wants to now take the place of God and wants to now control the action as opposed to realizing, okay, why do palm trees just work over here and you don't have them on the East Coast? Why are, why are all the maple trees up in Canada and over there and they're not down here? Why is this desert? Why are there mountains? Why is there this? Why is it? Because, you know, the ecology, it all works together. It all has a purpose. It all has a divine plan. And we don't look at that. We just look at our little section of life and then want to now develop and change our little section of life. But the point here is God is in control. God drives the action. In other words, mercy, grace, judgment. That comes from God. That is, and we have to understand that that our worldview has to be that we must surrender to God's rule. Because again, it's a kingdom. Kingdom is not a democracy. We don't get a vote. Right? You follow the rules, the edits of the king. And, and I think this is sometimes where People want to now challenge God's authority because they think they cannot see or feel God or God is not around. And so they want to now challenge God by, in a sense, well, I can control this, I can control that. But they forget that the one who's ultimately controlling everything is God because he's Alpha and Omega. He's already set it in action, you know. And it's, it's uh, uh, um, you know, you can try and paint the house, but the house has already been built. You can change some colors in the rooms, but that's not going to change the structure of the house, but what the house was designed to use, be used for. So God is in control, and we must surrender to God's rule. And that's, again, that's, that's the battle that sometimes people don't want to let go of because they're very humanistic. They're very... Uh, um, self-centered they're very I can do this I can figure this out uh, we can do this we can control the environment let's just stop having so many this so many of that you know uh, you know we got to control the ozone layer and then later on they find out well the ozone layer is designed to, to go small and to go big and all these things and you know the course of history you're going to have times when there's going to be famines you're going to have times when there's going to be not as much rain you're going to have different things because it's part of the ecology of the planet the way the planet renews itself which is goes back to alpha and omega so verse 22 to 26 what if god although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people. And her who has not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said to them, You are not my people. There, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Sons or daughters of the living God. That means children of them. In other words, the point here is now we now have an identity as children of God. And this is what he's saying is, Whether you're Jew or Gentile, 
Christianity, we are, we are, our identity now is in God. Our identity is from the scriptures. Our identity is from Alpha Alpha. Our identity comes from the vine. Our identity comes from Christ. That's why we should openly identify as Christian. Because this is who we are. See, a lot of times people have no problem. There's nothing wrong with it saying, well, you know, I'm, I'm Italian. I'm, this is who we are. We eat Italian food and we're this and that. Or I'm Hispanic or, I, or, I, or, I'm, or I'm Chinese or I'm whatever. And this is who we are. Nothing wrong with that. You identify with that culturally. But what we have to, when we're talking about this, we have to identify as children of God. We have to identify as Christians. And this is what happens when we stop doing that, when we abandon that, then we abandon the influence in the world. Because we're no longer uh, an influence in the world. And so if you just look at, not a political statement, but if you just look at the history of the United States, you remember and realize that when the country was being formed and land was given what was the first thing that they built on the land the church and it was built on the highest point of the land and then on top of that they put a steeple so that you could see it but where did government hold its meetings in the church and so then when we constitution and became became a country one nation under God and all that stuff, then we identified, and people people want to deny this, but we identified as what type of a nation? Christian. A Christian nation. That was our identity. It was it was firm for how many hundreds of years you wouldn't even have a thought of running for political office if you were not a Christian. And I remember Nobody else here is old enough to remember this, but I remember it. When John Kennedy ran for, for president, the big issue was he's a Catholic. That was a huge issue because he did not, they were saying he does not identify as Christian as we've always identified our political leaders. Okay? And so now what do you have? They identify as all kinds of stuff but they still try and identify as Christian because the history of the country, but we look at it and we see it as this is a name only, this is lip service, this is, you know, we've moved away. So again, where does the problem lie? That if we're not identifying, and supposedly we're the vast majority in the country, but yet we've now become that silent majority or we've not really grounded and rooted in our faith enough to identify as Christian to now affect change as Christian and biblically using God's law in all of that. Uh, the good news is this has happened before in the history of the world and then people have begun to identify again and, and things righten. So hopefully we are, you know. Thoughts, questions on that? Because that's... Basically, uh, we haven't identified, we, we identify ourselves as Christians. Uh, our history now is biblical. Why? Because we're grafted in to the vine. And what he's saying is, going all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all that stuff, that's, our, that's your story now. Because that's how we identify. Yeah, yeah we, are, we are Hispanic or, or we are whatever, but. We are now identify ourselves, our lineage, our history is now uh, uh, biblical. It's now kingdom of God stuff. So this you interpret through culture. So in other words, the gospel message doesn't change, but sometimes it's presented a little bit differently based upon culture. Because cultures react differently to things. So this is why a good evangelist studies the culture, understands the culture, and just brings Christ into the culture. This is St. Patrick. This is what St. Patrick did. 
Uh, that's why he was remembered, because he was the one that re-evangelized uh, uh, Northern Europe because he understood the culture uh, of the people, and he brought Christ into the culture of the people. And uh, you don't change their culture because God planted them as, as, as Africans, as Asians, as, as, as uh, Latins, whatever. You don't, you, don't, you don't have to change that. You just inject Christ in that. Right? So, verse 27. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the land the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. In other words, without the law, without God, we left to our own design, we would destroy ourselves. We would be ungodly, we would be wicked. But he says that it's going to be a remnant of people uh, that receive God. So look at it in terms of the first early church. The Jews had the word. They had temple. They had synagogue. They had everything that was directing them to the cross. But it was only a remnant of them that started the church. Because not all of them received Christ. Uh, you know, it's, it's a remnant. And that's one of the things in the Bible that God moves through the remnant. Because you don't always have everybody getting it all at the same time. You now have God moving through a remnant. Uh, moving towards God. So what he's saying to them is that, you know, even as... Gentiles as Romans, not all of you are going to get it. Not all of you are going to be drafted in right away, but it's going to be a remnant. It's going to be those. And remnant actually, as you break it, that word down, it means overcomers. And so you actually overcome what is around you, and your faith now brings you into, into Christ because the world and everything around it is trying to pull you away from the vine but God is trying to graft you into the, zine, into the vine. So therefore, you overcome the pole of the Pharisees. You overpull the, 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 the Sanhedrin and the, uh, uh, and the Sadducees that were trying to keep you bound to temple and bound to the sacrifices, where God was saying, no, there's just one sacrifice now through Jesus Christ. And if you believe in your heart, you're not grafted into the vine. Remnant overcomes that, right? And so then the last part here, verse 30 to 33. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. And just as is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Speaking, this is Isaiah, I mean, this is Psalm 118, verse 22. Speaking of Jesus Christ, you know, is that stumbling block, that's what they stumble over. You know, the remnant overcomes that, right? And they gravitate towards God. So verse 30, what shall we say then, that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Righteousness comes by faith. But Israel, meaning classical Israel, those that did not uh, receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at the law. So in other words, they, they were being legalistic, but they could not even use the law to save themselves, and they didn't use it lawfully. Example would be when Jesus Christ went on the cross, they broke the law to assemble on a, on, a, on, a, on a holy day and do work where God commanded them not to do any work. And they, they assembled together, gathered the, the Sanhedrin, did all of that on a day that was holy to the Lord where they were supposed to do no work. And yet they were saying that they were being righteous, they were being legalistic, they were doing things according to the law. Well, they broke the law 
to do what they wanted to do. And that's what he's saying here. You know, they, they, their, their righteousness it can't come from the law because they break the law, but yet they say they're righteous. Verse 32, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, right? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. In other words, they had a theology of you do this, you do this, you do that, you do this, you do, you know, and then you achieve God. But then he quotes scripture and he says from Psalm 118 verse 22, just as it is written, again, from the writings. And in, when in the Hebrew Bible, Psalms are part of what was logged together as the writings. He said, it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion, which is the holy city, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus, again, is our chief cornerstone that we build upon. Uh, and he who believes in him uh, will not be disappointed. Okay, so again, he's just saying everything comes through Christ. We are grafted in here, not because of the law, but we're grafted in because of our faith in Jesus Christ based upon what God has said, and everything God has said has come from the Old Testament and the Scriptures, and now we are part of that, and we become the fruit of the vine. And the law can be a stumbling block when it's used as a means of self-justification. In other words, legalism tells you, well, you have to do it this way, this way, this way, this way. But what it is, it becomes man-made laws trying to interpret what God is doing. But the law wasn't there to get us to salvation. The law was there to show us how we failed to meet God's standard. So the law can, that's why where it says the law can never save, because the law doesn't take us to salvation. The law takes us to showing us how we've all fallen short. So he can't take us, shows us we've fallen short. And that's why we need a Savior. So I'll stop there. Is there thoughts, questions, concerns? It's good theology stuff, you know, in Romans. That's why just trying to do just a chapter at a time. But again, when you're reading this, if you have any questions or thoughts or come to class with the thoughts, if you're reading back to something and, and you know, we can, we, can, we can go through it and look at it because it's really good stuff in here. Uh, again, it's, it's, it's Christianity. 101. So, so we good? Let's pray. Lord, we just give you praise, honor, and glory. We Again, we thank you for this time, Lord. We thank you for those who are here in person, those who are listening via podcast, Lord. We thank you that your spirit is the one that imparts wisdom and guidance in all of this. So we thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit, Lord, that uh, uh, renews our mind to the things of God, that uh, directs our mind to the things of God. And so, Lord, we just uh, give you praise, we give you honor, and we give you glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. See you next week.